So welcome to a new episode of Roll for Enterprise. As ever, I'm joined by Zach and Mike, and today we have a couple of news items before we dive into the main topic. I was interested to see that Microsoft has announced a new hardware device specifically to help Teams users to beat Zoom. So this is kind of interesting because, of course, Zoom had their own all-in-one device that they also announced. And so these are basically screens with microphones and cameras attached, uh, multiple cameras in the case of the Zoom device, so that you can always be on Zoom calls in your home. And it kind of reminds me of the Cisco devices that if you went to Cisco or to big Cisco customers, many people had on their desks that were kind of a way to join a web conferences without having to go and book an actual meeting room. So what do you guys think? Are you going to be buying one of these things? I, I don't know when we ended up in hardware wars because I thought software was eating the world, but I, I, I don't think so. I mean, I, I just don't see a use for it, right? I mean, I, I think it's a bit, it's a bit silly because I mean, I, I would rather have, I mean, the real estate on my desk has become the most important real estate now that I, that I have, right? And what I fill it up with, I, I'd rather have like another monitor than just one monitor that does one things and sure, okay, fancy camera, whatever. But I, I just don't, I, I just don't see it proliferating and having like this worldwide acceptance. I mean, I could see some uh, really like high level executive who wants his new toy and wants to see it, but I, I don't see most people moving towards it. I mean, it just, it, it makes no sense to me. I didn't, I, I didn't think there was a lot of use case for the Cisco devices when they came out because it's like single purpose. The only place I could see them going is when we go back to the office in some small conference rooms, but even there like login, identity. I, I don't know how that works. I, I don't know. Wait, what, what do you think, Zach? Well, first of all, Zoom has hired a lot of ex-Cisco uh, collaboration sales guys. So, I mean, they, they're targeting, I think, the enterprise of this, not your traditional, you know, teenager that's been using Zoom for the Zoom parties and things like that. Uh, they're a spin out of Cisco. We should just say it. Let's go. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly. Well, that's true. It, but, you know, I think, you know, that said, I mean, these are probably in development before the pandemic. So, you know, I'm not sure that it's the right inflection point for them. And I, I still I, I agree with you. I think it's, um, you know, I don't know how helpful it's going to be for us right now in, in the home office, because when I look at something like a Teams, for example, and what Microsoft is doing is much more than just the endpoint devices, right? They're able to tie in everything. And what does Zoom have? We talked about this before. There's there's no, uh, you know, Slack or or, you know, capabilities like that. So I think they, they still have a little bit of ways to go. And I think this is geared for the enterprise, but <clears throat> will it have much traction? I, I, I don't know. I, I agree. I doubt that. Yeah, I'm kind of with you. So I do see a point for hardware devices like this. I'm just not sure that the enterprise use case is the right one for it. As you say, dedicating this much hardware to a single use case is a bit limited. I was more bullish on the Facebook portal type devices, if only they hadn't been made by Facebook. I basically have my own homegrown version of this because I have a Mac mini that is connected to a TV. And on top of the TV, there's a webcam. Why would you do that? Because it's the best way to get the whole family on screen and see I mean, granny or whoever on the other end of, uh, of the connection. And so it's great for that type of Zoom call. But even then, it's not a dedicated device. I use the Mac Mini for a lot more than just that. Like I say, if only it hadn't been Facebook, I don't trust Facebook with a webcam in my house. If Apple brought out like an Apple TV with a webcam that had FaceTime built in and you could walk into the room and say, hey, dingus, call mom or whatever, I could see a use case for that. I think two points, right? One, these things need to operate for 
frictionless. And, you know, I, I look at the Microsoft one because they had this like glitzy video. And I think you see Cortana plugged in. You see like, oh, set, open this in my desktop. That's nice. But a regular user, I don't know that that jives with them, right? It's not it's not frictionless enough. But to your point, Dominic, I think like if you think that Microsoft has added Cortana and where everything's going and you make reference to, to Facebook portal, which I think is a flop because it's Facebook. Then if you start to look at like the Echo Show and what Amazon has done with Alexa, I think that is probably the best kind of home device and home device experience. And I don't know if you guys have a show or have called like family with with the show, but it's easy for kids to use. It's easy for everybody. Okay. Yeah. A bit of a, a creeper kind of vibe. Sure. But I think like, you know, maybe we look at it as, as Teams versus Zoom, but maybe we need to look at this as oh no, you know, Amazon and, and Alexa's coming and maybe that's where that's where they're focused in terms of their competition. And, and that I could see a, a little more clearly than um, what they're releasing here because I, I think this is like first version, like there's, there's gonna, I mean, I, I just don't see the hardware. I, I mean, I just don't, I just don't see the long-term staying power of this. Yeah, it goes back to, you're right, enterprise versus you're trying to get into the house, right? And to, by the consumer, like an Alexa, yeah, it's the consumerization of enterprise. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's where they're going to have a little bit of a problem. As a matter of fact, on the uh, the flip side of that, if you are Amazon or Facebook, you're already in the house or Google. Uh, you know, interesting, we're not talking about Apple and all of this, right? So it's uh, I think um, they were late to the game releasing their device. But um, yeah, I, I think it's just depends. I mean, it's their you know, it's the wrong time. And uh, I don't think they could have slowed this thing down or stopped it. I think it was in development, obviously, before the pandemic. And it is what it is for Zoom. Yeah, I mean, it's a good way to launch it, saying this is the pandemic thing and makes it easier. I do see a benefit. I'm just not sure it's enough to justify a huge hulking piece of hardware. When my general purpose device in my pocket, my Apple device, I can say, hey, Dingus, call Mike using Zoom, and this will do it. It's not dedicated just to its own service, which is the failing that I see with this thing. Anyway, we'll see how it goes. I will watch stock prices of the two. But staying with communication, there's also been some telco news. Everyone and their dog has been following 5G that is supposedly mind-controlling us with Bill Gates or something along those lines. But uh, the UK is a bit more worried than most, apparently, and is barring the use of Huawei equipment in its 5G network. This is a bit of a U-turn because the UK was one of the countries that had deployed 5G equipment from Huawei and also non-5G, pre-5G equipment very widely and had until recently said we're going to continue to allow Huawei, just not in the core network. And there were some questions about you know, exactly how that line was going to be drawn. Just on the last week, they came up with uh, this new ruling, and they say, no, we're not going to allow it. And now there's a huge row over the timeline. Now, 5G, I've been skeptical about the value of the networking technology itself. Uh, 4G is fine for most purposes. 5G is going to be better, but for a very small number of purposes, and it comes with a whole number of downsides as well. 5G cells, to provide that extra power, they're much smaller, so you need more of them. So rural coverage is probably never going to be 5G. City coverage also has its issues because it doesn't penetrate buildings as well. So it's only going to be when you're out of doors in the center of a major city, and that's when we're going to be watching big, long videos or playing immersive games that require a ton of bandwidth rather than you know, walking. I'm not convinced. What do you guys think of this whole story? Wow, that's uh, two angles. So that's uh, the angle of like, hey, do we need 5G? Will 5G really become um, the hot take? I mean, I'll tell you that um, 
let's say that I see the infliction point being when Apple releases a 5G phone. When Apple releases a 5G phone, everybody will want 5G, whether you see benefits from it or not. And I think Apple's marketing spin will say, we need it. And, and, and they'll have something to do with that. And potentially they're talking that the next phone will have it. Didn't one of the US carriers have an update that faked that? It said it was 5G, but it wasn't actually. <laughs> yeah, and it's still it's still around, to be honest. So uh, I'm an AT&T uh, customer. Uh, um, I, I, I don't think Zach is, but yeah, you'll, you'll get, um, you'll, you'll get to certain parts in the city and you'll see like 5G E, which, uh, is just a glorified 4G. So I, I don't think that, yeah, I think most people are not fooled by it, but yeah, we see it everywhere in the U S so it's, it's quite uh, pervasive that, that feature. One thing we don't talk about with 5G is it's really about the latency more so than the bandwidth, first of all, which enables a plethora of different applications and, from a technology perspective, there's a thing called network slicing. So it's it's done much differently than on 4G world. So you can say, you know, you have a slice for, uh, I don't know, uh, retail, a slice for automobiles, a slice for the end user. So there are a lot of interesting things you can do with 5G. And I want to also point out that 5G is a greenfield build out, right? Unlike 4G, which, you know, you kind of had a brownfield build out from 3G. So <clears throat> there's a lot at stake here. And I think there's a lot at stake for the service providers, not necessarily from the consumer as much as it is from the business. I mean, they are fighting for their life. We all know this. We see this every day. Uh, SD-WAN has disrupted their market share. You know, their 15-year cash cow circuits they were selling to businesses. And I think they need this more so than than anybody right now, to be honest. Um, they need this build out. But uh, I, I think just to kind of dismiss it, and, say, and there's this old thing, especially when I was an analyst, where some of the analysts said, look, we... We don't need the bandwidth. We don't need 5G. We're not even even using 4G. Well, it's it's coming whether you like it or not. And we will find use cases. And I think we have those use cases. Um, and I think there's still a ways to go. If you look at what T-Mobile has purchased, some of the old spectrums from the cable TV, um, Dominic, I think I think there's some interesting things they can do there as far as you know uh, getting that signal inside the house. But all that said, this battle has many many different impl implications in it. Um, and I think we need to really, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, view it differently than just, you know, hey, you know, uh, end user bandwidth, things like that. But I, I'm a believer in 5G. I, I think the use cases are there. I think we just need to start thinking about it a little bit differently. If you're going to unlock the next wave of innovation, I, I think you need 5G, right? If you look at self-driving cars, AI, I think it's... I mean, it will come, right? So I think it'll unlock this this wave of innovation. As to like the UK's ruling about yeah kicking out Huawei, I mean, you, you know, it's 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 kind of hard, and and we sit in the the US perspective, right? Um, you know, pushing it out, but you know, I, I don't know that it was so clear like when when Cisco was the dominant player that that Cisco wasn't doing some some of the stuff Huawei was doing, you know, and and some of the other carriers. So it, it's a bit tough to see from from that side, and. I don't think you get to 5G without the help of China, right? If we look at Huawei, if you look at ZTE, I don't know that there are too many other than Ericsson and Nokia that are are ready to deploy and replace some of um, some of what what Huawei has uh, so quickly come to market in and and kind of set up its foothold everywhere, right? If you want to be early, you you got to go Huawei. How about ZTE? We're forgetting ZTE. I mean, those guys are. <laughs> They own a lot of patents. Are they already under injunction? Though? They they are, but they've already got what forty plus countries deployed. Um, you know, early on, Mike and I talked about this about four years ago, actually, Mike. To the day, almost, we started talking about five G and how ZTE and uh, 
and Huawei were were in the lead. Um, you know, Germany, um, you look at the UK, I mean, ZTE is, um, you know, we forget about them. You're right. They are under, under sanction for what they've done in Iran, but uh, we're, I, we're losing the race. I mean, we're behind and, and it's hard for us to admit that. We don't like to admit that, but uh, we are. Yeah, that's kind of the problem that now, you know, July 2020 to say rip out all of that Huawei gear and do it tomorrow is a little bit difficult because, you know, Ericsson and Nokia, as you said, they have the tech, but they don't have the production capacity right now to resupply the entirety of the UK mobile network in five minutes. That's a whole other issue. And, you know, how we got there is a different story. No, I think if you want to win at this game, you, you need to win for the for the long game, right? And I, I think Huawei, China, they, they had 5G set on their radar. I mean, if you really... I mean, the only way you're going to you're gonna win this game, if you really want to win this game, you, you need to think long term, right? And, and maybe you let Huawei have its its moment, take everything, and, and then you, you focus on the next generation, the next thing, and see how fast you can get you can get there. Because if you can get there, there faster and you, you put the right people together, then there's no question Huawei goes away. The problem is that we can't have uh, the brain drain we've had, the uh, intellectual property theft from, from from the China side. I mean, if that stops and, and you could lock that down and focus on the next generation, that's where the win is. I mean, r- ripping out Huawei, I think it's, yeah, yeah, you could do it, but you're only, I think at the end of the day, these countries are potentially only hurting themselves, right? You know, one thing we're not talking about is Mobile World Congress being canceled this year in Barcelona. I think there was a lot of interesting things that would have come out of that. Uh, yeah. Yes, exactly. And you had what Amazon actually had a presence there this year and a couple other interesting people. So, I mean, that I, I think that tells us the importance of 5G. Um, especially with the Amazon and, and again, one of their, you know, 1800 code names, but I think it's wavelength and what they're doing at the edge um, or what they're going to try to do with 5G. And you, you look at what um, uh, Satya is doing at Microsoft and some of his acquisitions. So I think even the cloud guys are, are trying to realize the benefits. Unfortunately for the service providers, this is where I think they might they might lose. But yeah. I think so, the value's over the top. But another interesting aspect to consider is, without getting into the merits of the politics, it's unfortunate that right now the US and Europe are politically at loggerheads, because this isn't the only issue where a common position would be good. The whole TikTok situation as well. And the US policy could benefit from the European experience because the European governments have a lot more experience with managing an internet that is populated mainly by overseas companies. They've been US companies until now, and now they're starting to be Chinese companies as well. That's a new thing for the US to have major players that are not US companies, that are not subject to US laws. In Europe, we have a bit more experience, and I think there could be some sharing. That is a, a very different take, and I think that is something that um, you know the U.S. kind of is concerned about losing maybe its lead. The, the TikTok stuff. I mean, it's it's it's. I mean, it has too much of a footprint for them to just rip it out without causing issues. Although the Facebook rival is, I think, weeks and months away because Reels has been in. In I, I guess they've they've been running it in Brazil and some other countries, so. It's it's interesting, and and do they wait for that before before shutting it down? I mean, I I don't know. It's it's uh, it's interesting. I'm sure this one will run and run. The main topic that we wanted to talk about this week was another long running topic, which is open source. Um, the specific reason this came up in the news was Google's announcement around Istio. Basically, they are pushing some of their patents into a new organization called the Open Usage Commons, Istio being the main thing that they're putting there. And so this has brought open source back to being front and center in the conversation. 
how much is it really a factor in the enterprise? I mean, open sources can be can be sometimes a bit of an echo chamber with people basically yelling about who's more pure according to the open source gospel. But in the real world, and specifically I'd like to hear from Mike, how much would you care if you were looking at uh, a purchase for your organization about whether a particular vendor had open source credentials or whether it was an open source project versus commercially supported? I think this is more of a developer question, right? I mean, how much control does developer want? I mean, I think open source is great because of the the transparency, but then you, you know, I sit back and think of you're giving a developer a lot of, a lot of control with open source, right? So it starts to become a bit of a, a security concern when it's that open, right? Because then you start thinking about patching, so on and so forth. Because typically, if you're if you're looking at open source to the point where you're getting to to kernel level, it, it gets so so weird, you know. But you know, take me back to Istio, because I mean, what is Google and what are we really looking at, right? Because it's contain it's containers, right? If I'm if I'm right and isn't the whole point to avoid all the backend discussion? And I mean, do we really need open source in, in this world? I mean, it, it sounds like this is just like Google and IBM fighting for something that maybe I don't I don't see the big picture of. That that's that, that's where I have the issue here. So what is Istio? <laughs> I mean, that's you said that it's an overlay, it's a management layer that sits over the top of Kubernetes. I don't know that much more than that. It's not something that I've used myself. But as I understand it, the main thing is the, the metrics and the monitoring that it provides. And again, that piggybacks on top of other open source projects, Prometheus, which is part of Cloud Native Computing Foundation, and Grafana, which is kind of the default uh, dashboarding components that everyone knows and uses. Yeah, it's just another of those things that you already know from your non-cloud infrastructure that lets you draw pretty pictures of how things are performing. That's why, as you say, the open source, how much of it is really a factor, this uh, wrangling about uh, the specific licensing? I'm not sure. It's uh, it's nice to have, but especially since it only seems to be three organizations, Google, IBM, as you say, and also Lyft, that really contribute to the thing. Maybe it's not a huge issue. Yeah, and I, I guess what they're building is the next generation, right? Where it's um, it's it's services that you that you call on, and and the back end you don't worry about, or maybe you open source the back end so that everybody can use it. And you know, I, I get the feeling this is kind of a, a war about you know who are companies going to talk to Google and IBM, and IBM feels a bit left out. I mean, IBM's invested a lot in open source. I mean, and then. You know, I think they were the first major vendor to really go hard on Linux. Later on, they bought uh, they bought Red Hat maybe last year or so. Yeah. So, I mean, they have a lot invested in it, and I think they want everybody to see them as like the open source champions, right? And and that goes back to when they were uh, they were battling Microsoft. So I, I don't know. It seems like I don't know how relevant it is. And you know, I think for peace of mind, I I don't know that the enterprises care as much as as the, the developers do. I don't know how you see it, Zach. The problem is operationally. So we talk about open source and all the benefits and what we're working on, what we're trying to achieve. What's one thing that everybody's kind of struggled with the last several years? And what's really the predominant reason why cloud has come to be, right? And that's that's the operational simplicity. And, and um, you know, I, I think, you know, the only one that's really been successful at that, and you touched on it, Mike, is, is Red Hat. Other people have tried. You look at Mirantis and some of these other open source initiatives and companies. I think 
think they've all tried that and they've tried to help with the support angle. But when I hear you guys talk, all I think about is is the complexity, complexity, complexity on all of the all these open source. I mean, it's, if I'm a, an enterprise and I want to deploy some of these solutions and they're open source, I I personally think of challenges. I mean, gosh, how do we you know how do we operationalize this? How are we gonna you know what if something happens? Um, and this is really where I'm curious what you think, Mike, because I know you you know operations is your is your um, your forte. Yeah, the, I mean the complexity the, the complexity is always going to be a problem and I think what I see is is things becoming more complex, right? Yep. I think we move to cloud because you know and the move to cloud is is interesting for a lot of a lot of places, a lot of enterprises because they realize they lose control uh to some extent at uh the OS level and and so on and so forth. But you know, I think it's it's ease of mind, right? That becomes a cloud provider's issue and you trust that they will uh, maintain the security at that level and then you start to focus on on someplace else. I think what's happening, like we're talking open source software, but I think people are getting more and more into custom hardware. Um, I, you know, and I, I don't know how to how to say this, but if you look at what NVIDIA is doing and what, you know, you look at smart products, I think the focus and the open source side is more on, you know, the IoT products and the intelligence we're starting to put into into products that some people are developing in terms of hardware. So I think, you know, to spend time um, on the open source side in the cloud, I think is a bit, you know not where I would put focus, rather on the device or the trinket we're selling, I would say. So it, it's it's kind of like two-sided. And I think you know, this 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 argument of what people are looking at, I, I think is the wrong place to focus in, in my honest opinion. Yeah, I think that resonates. As you say, it's a developer factor. So if I'm a developer, if I'm building the gadget, the trinket, as you called it, the idea that I can have a free open source operating system Free is actually the the part that I care most about. Open source is kind of so so. I, I care about it because it means there's uh, no licensing worries associated with it, and I can build my thing. I can throw up a a Raspberry Pi or something like that, uh, or I can just embed Linux way down the stack and never mention it, and use Grafana uh, to do a dashboard. I can do all of these things. The person who's the user of these devices, they care a lot less about that. They might care if it starts to be an issue, if it starts to introduce complexity in their lives, if they have to worry about licenses. The last time we worried about licenses was in the late 90s uh, when there was the whole thing about the GPL, uh, the contagion of the GPL that Microsoft uh, largely pushed out this FUD that if you used any GPL code in your product, the whole thing would become GPL and you'd have to give it away for free. You wouldn't be able to sell it anymore. And I think we've moved beyond that, largely with the move to the cloud. The cloud is built on open source products, but that's all hidden because what people buy are the services, not the open source products that underpin them. I come to this from a, from a security angle because I think you... Like when you talk complexity, complexity and it gets security involved because it, it gets... Yeah, the more complex, the less secure. Yeah, yeah. And that was the other interesting piece of news. Sorry to interrupt you just quickly to add to the conversation because we we're talking Red Hat. But of course, the other big Linux vendor was SUSE and they were in the news at the same time because they bought Rancher Labs, which is a management overlay for Kubernetes once again. Yeah, so so Kubernetes is where the, the war is being fought, I would say. But I think... When we talk the focus of the enterprise, I think the focus of the enterprise is, is shifting to product security 
and you know how what we're using uh, to put the smarts into those those products, trinkets, whatever it is. Uh, and I think what at least what I would hope for is that when we look at uh, the cloud side or the the main infrastructure side, that everything there is secured and guaranteed as long as we're using kind of standard products, I, I would say. And, and that's how that's how I see it. So it, it, it's a little it's a little different than I think how how others would would take it. But then again, it also depends on what your end product to your business to the businesses you're selling to is. That's exactly right. I go back to what you just said, the business and the businesses, and they're the ones that are going to have to make this decision. And, you know, do they want to bring in, you know, more developers? I mean, do they and this really goes back to something we discussed several weeks back, right? You know, no code, low code. You know, what are they trying to achieve? What are they looking for? Yeah, this is interesting. And, and yeah, and you go back to low code, no code. I mean, this is kind of like um, everybody, I think the the vendors are are going through a, a fundamental shift where they're, they're trying to be everything to every company to get, you know, a small piece of business that can grow into a bigger piece of business. It, it becomes really difficult, right? And, and I think we on the enterprise side, and, and now I'll talk from our side, we, we, the enterprises need to make a decision whether they go best of breed or everything from one supplier. And that gets really, um, really difficult, right? Because you want the relationship, the, the, a bit of the, the power to sway things and and that gets much more difficult as you move forward. Yeah, that starts to be the problem as you say with complexity with these relationships. If you're buying from company X but their main product is built on top of open source technology Y, if you want a certain feature, you need a certain feature and it's something that's in that open source underlay, maybe it can be influenced, maybe the roadmap can be influenced, maybe your vendor has enough resources to commit upstream and get it into the code. Or maybe they're going to say, sorry, that's not in the the project. We're going to have to wait until the open source community aggregates around that and builds the thing that you need, and then we can expose it to you. And that's not necessarily going to be a good response for you who need that feature. That's uh, the, the one downside of these things. And there, and there, you would be at the mercy of um, of a vendor. Uh, not really the ideal case. And, and then you'll see other enterprises reach out to to other enterprises to see if they can uh, if if they can force or twist an arm uh, together, which is which is quite difficult when uh, roadmaps are are pieced out and product people have spoken to marketing people and they already have their plans to to move forward one way or another. The dream of open source that a whole ton of people would swoop in and contribute, it's a law of large numbers type of thing. It works with Linux simply because there are so many users and so many use cases for Linux that even the most obscure piece of hardware, some Linux hacker somewhere in the world is going to have that and is going to want to use it with uh, their Linux server. And so they're going to build and maintain a driver. And so there's a reasonable chance that your thing is going to be supported. Once you get beyond that level, the commitments quickly drop off. And so you wind up with these things like Istio, where there were three huge organizations that commit to it and not much else. So if the thing that you want isn't of interest to Google, IBM and Lyft, and now after this announcement, maybe just Google, then you're going to be in trouble. Businesses don't have time for lab projects. And, and that's really what IT has been known for a lot, right? Is there something in the lab? Let's play with it for a year or two. Let's tinker with it. Let's do this. Let's do that. You don't see major uh, healthcare institutions, hospitals working with uh, open source, you know, 
uh, imaging uh, devices and things like that, right? Or, you know, open source, you know, heart monitors, things like that, right? So I, I go back to what I was saying earlier. There's a shift that we're, we're, not, we're not ignoring, but a large part of the industry is sticking their head in the sand. And that shift is to the business and the, the days of bringing this stuff into a lab and playing with it for a year, two years, uh, this whole DIY notion, right? I, I see it, you know, where I'm at, where, you know, some some clients are like, oh, we want to build it ourselves and do this and do that. Well, first of all, you don't have time to do that. And second of all, these these lab, and I, I hate to be so harsh, but I really feel firmly about this whole open source thing is that's what it becomes. And you're relying on a community and you're relying on other IT people. Well, the business doesn't have time for that. And they've spoken. They've spoken five, six years ago with cloud. They've already put their their fist in the table and said, we don't have time. We need to get stuff up. We need to do it quickly. We don't you know, care about all these other things. Let's just operationalize it and, and get moving. So sorry to interrupt you, Mike. No, what gets so scary in, in that scenario, Zach, and, and you know, you see it all the time is like, you know, everybody puts their eggs in one basket, starts running one way, and then it just disappears, right? The yes. geeks, as I like to call them, move in another direction. And then here you are, potentially you've deployed something uh, inside the enterprise. And, and now you, you're you're stuck kind of unwinding that. And, and that those are hard conversations when you get to that point. Um, so you always want to see certain things get a footholding, you, you know, and, and, and maybe if you look back at the bigger thing about Kubernetes, I mean, I think what people are what people want is portability, right? And in, in, in anything they build. So that you're not locked into to one, yeah, let's say one provider, one technology, one, you know, it, it's 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 gotta be be portable. And I think that was uh, at least to me, the original thinking about about open source is hey, we're gonna make this all portable, but we're going very much in an upper opposite direction now as you see the industry moving because as you try to get every piece of uh, efficiency out or every advantage you're starting to to maximize for hardware and that doesn't play well to portability or to yeah to the open source kind of world i do wonder what the end game is though because i mean i think we've thrashed out the enterprise point of view quite clearly but the end user point of view as in the home user can be quite different. There was a push a few years ago, especially again here in Europe, to have open formats, open document formats. Uh, There were situations where government was providing resources that would only work in Microsoft Office or even in commercial programs that worked only on Microsoft Windows. And people challenged this and said, you can't expect people to buy a specific platform that only to use a specific platform to use your thing. And so there was a a move in the direction of open data, and that's produced uh, all sorts of interesting things, not just in terms of being able to use forms, but also open data sets that have let people do things like track the spread of COVID. A lot of that is coming out of that same open source community. I do wonder if the enterprise loses interest, because that's where a lot of the dollars to maintain these projects were coming from, what might happen then? See, I I see that as an API discussion. I, I like because I think that's where the future is going. If, you know, open the data, give me an API, and and let's let's get going. I think that's where some of that is is shifting. I I, I could be wrong in the way I see it, but yeah, I don't know. I think you're right, Mike. API driven infrastructure. I think you're right. It's a bit of like old school thinking meets new world, and I think we have a, a kind of generation shift almost happening in how the developers see it that that's the way i think it's it's kind of evolving when when i hear kind of your reasoning and and thought process on the last one dominic Hmm. i think that's a good point to end it because apis are worth an entire episode's worth of discussion (laughs) in their own right absolutely
maybe let's uh, let's plan that for one of the next uh, few episodes and see if we can get a relevant guest on for that one as well because it was great last week having that outside perspective i agree i think that'd be a great conversation to have yep excellent let's get that set up well with that thank you to once again and thank you to all the listeners and we will speak to you again next week thank you thanks guys have a great weekend thanks everybody Thank you.